netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for taking the time to download the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our guest this week is none other than the incredibly talented actor and comedian, Barry Shearer. But if things sound a bit strange, well, that's because I guess we're in strange times. Um, I'm actually recording this as I'm driving back to the United States from Mexico, where I've been isolating in the middle of a desert in northern Mexico. No cell phone service, no data, no nothing, it seems like, for the next hour and a half. And so I thought, no better time to record an FX podcast intro. Hope everything is going well for everyone as the COVID lockdowns are easing and production is starting up again. It was obviously really brutal in our industry, um, but hopefully now with production picking up, it's going to pick up the most. Um, I've actually been isolating in, in Mexico. That's the reason I'm going back, including a small fishing village in Yalapa, which is south of Puerto Vallarta. You can all get there by boat, no cars. We have really good internet uh, and upload speeds are actually faster than downloads. One of the few places I've seen that mainly because everyone's consuming, no one's creating. So for me doing a couple of freelance gigs, it worked out really well riding up the storm. So before we continue and get into our podcast this week, I just want to thank everyone who is an FX Insider contributor. Mike and I were chatting a couple of months ago about how generous everyone is with their support. We really appreciate it because it truly does help support what we do at FX Guide. Keeps the website running, all the plugins, the infrastructure, things like that. So thank you very much. Um, we just started well, several months ago, sending out a couple bonus emails. Mike's doing them well every two to three weeks. So yeah, just little bonuses, extra article content for those of you who we did to the FX Insider program. Just, it's not much, but it's really a way for us to say thank you and, and let you know that we appreciate the generosity of your support. All right. So with the podcast, why Harry Shearer? Well, Harry's been is releasing a series of Singles centered around Tr- Donald Trump. Yes, President Donald Trump, of course. What other, what other Trump is there? Um, up until the U.S. election. And one of those uh, recent releases, Son in Law, has an accompanying music video. It's kind of appropriate in a way to COVID because it was produced between Los Angeles, where Gary Shearer was, and Sydney, where the post and tech was done. So, kind of a good case study of remote production workload during lockdown. It also uses technologies such as uh, motion capture. Uh, here he's doing motion capture with it, uh, Unreal Engine rendering, as well as deep fakes. Uh, if you want to find out more about the technical side of things, be sure to check out the article on the text guide where Mike dives into quite a bit of detail on that. Uh, this podcast is really focused more, I guess you'd say, on the creative. A bit of information about Harry Shearer. He, of course, amazing actors I mentioned, the Spinal Tap and The Simpsons. Those things are touched on but not focused on. But it really helps kind of drive and let, let you see where Harry's coming from and using technology and, and also ways in which he thinks the technology and changes like what he did through this um, can actually help him do his job as a comedian or an actor uh, even better, as a writer uh, even better. So, so uh, jealous of Mike having the opportunity to chat with him. Uh, so let's go ahead and cross to that now. Mike Seymour chatting with Harry Sheeran. Uh, thanks so much for agreeing to talk to us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, what I thought I'd do, uh, if it's all right with you, is uh, spend a few minutes, maybe 10 minutes, just uh, going back over some of your earlier career before we swing back to obviously the most recent project, which is uh, something that I'm incredibly keen to talk to you about because Great. I'm just so impressed with your your uh, 
your pedigree of acting and uh, and and other things. I mean, am I right in thinking that you actually started as a child actor? Yes, I thought you were going to say I started as a child. Um, <laughs> yes, I did start it. I started my my career as a child actor. I got into show business at the age of seven, um, and uh, I've, I've tried to get out a couple times, but it, it keeps pulling me back in. I was uh, a child actor on the radio and television programs of this guy who I think has been lost to memory in a lot of uh, the present moment, but was a towering comedy uh, figure uh, for decades in, in America, a fellow by the name of Jack Benny. And uh, I oh, was one, of, a, one of the greats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I worked for him for eight years. I mean, uh, so many amazing people. I think uh, your first feature was a literally an Abbott and Costello film. You must have been just what six or seven. It must have been incredibly. Yeah, that, I started at seven. So uh, yeah, uh, Abbott and Costello go to Mars, and it's a. Um, I'm in one scene, in the first scene. So I never saw the whole movie because I saw the first scene and then went, okay, well that's it. That's me. Um, years later, I'd moved to New Orleans. And uh, somebody said, did you ever see that movie? I said, no. Well, you know that they didn't go to Mars, right? Yeah, I thought, you know, just like Elon Musk. Um, and they said, yeah. Do you know where they ended up, that rocket? No. In New Orleans at Mardi Gras. <laughs> so Abbott and Costello and I both all ended up in Mardi in, in New Orleans. Um, also, and I'm really interested to find out a little bit more about this. Um, I read somewhere that uh, Mel Blanc was a mentor and somebody that uh, you worked with and and obviously another great how did that come mm -hmm. to be well that's half true he was he was somebody i worked with alongside uh, on the jack benny program he okay. mel blank a lot of characters as well as being the voice of the classic looney tunes characters and all those great cartoons but mentor no he never sat me down and said hey kid here's how you do voices he was just a really uh, a wonderful kind of paternal he had a son the same age as me so I think he felt, uh, you know, a, a, that kind of kinship and uh, a couple of times uh, got me out of jams uh, really fortuitously. So he was a, a lovely man to get to know. And you said you tried leaving showbiz a couple of times. And I presume one of those, you studied at uh, UCLA, right? Political science? UCLA and and uh, then a year at Harvard uh, Graduate School. Yeah, that was my, okay, I'm going to be a, a, a real grown up now and uh, do something serious for a living. And uh, I tried that. I, I taught school for a couple of years. I did journalism and I worked at the state legislature here in California for a year. And then I went, okay, tried being a serious grown up. Thank you. <laughs> you daddled back into the funny business. Well, obviously we'll talk about uh, political issues in a moment, but uh, it's interesting that you've had that uh, part of your life for, for just so long because you know, obviously Harvard and, and uh, UCLA are absolutely first class institutions. Mm -hmm. You 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 said you two years teaching, right? This is like uh, in the late sixties, I'm guessing. In the mid sixties. Mid sixties, yeah. okay. Um, and it's only what uh, like the next decade that you end up on Saturday Night Live. In fact, you had two stints on Saturday Night Live, didn't you? In the in the seventies and the eighties. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, so smart. I did something stupid twice. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that was as positive a collaborative experience as perhaps you've had elsewhere in your career, from what I understand. 
that's not as positive a collaborative experience as being thrown into solitary at Folsom. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to be polite, but yes. Uh, okay. So, so before we get on any further, I'm going to have to flag the, uh, I mean, I'm sure you get this all the time, but a huge, uh, fan of Spinal Tap. It was just oh, the most impressive film and really started an entire genre of that style of films. But having seen it, I don't know how many times I'm still stunned mm. that you guys were improvising so much. It, it seems to have such a good flow and arc. And I, I, I guess, um, Again, working with really, really great uh, people like Rob Reiner, but but you guys improvising that must have been extremely well. Know, was it difficult or was it easy? Um, it it was easy, I guess. I mean, um, we didn't do it to do an improvised movie. We did it uh, because we thought that was the only way to make it look like a real documentary, which was the goal then. Um, None of us had been in improv groups. Um, Michael and I had been in a comedy group together, but we wrote everything that we performed. And he and Chris had been in bands together, but never improv groups. So this was not, this wasn't something that we were doing every night for four years before we got into this picture. Uh, this was something we did for the, and you know, everybody in the movie, I think maybe two or three of them had been in improv groups, uh, but they were just ceaselessly brilliant. I mean. Uh, everybody was improvising. The only person who wasn't was Patrick McNee. We wrote his two lines and that's not taking anything away from him. It just was, that was how it turned out. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 we, we didn't, we didn't think of that, that much about it. We just thought we started writing a script and we thought nobody's going to understand this and it's not going to look the way we want it to look anyway. So let's, let's shoot it. Yeah, and yet, like it comes together and has been, you know, since revered as like one of the, you know, great films of, if not sort of the pivotal film of that entire genre. Yet, I understand at the initial box office, you didn't get that kind of reception, right? You didn't, out of well, the we gate, were, have that sort of success. We we were being distributed by a studio that was on its last legs. Uh, they were distributing two other movies that year, and the two other movies were called Parasite and Paradise. So they knew those letters were magic, but they didn't know what, but they, they really went bankrupt. Um, and, and that has something to do with it. Um, we were doing okay business. I know with this story, we were doing okay business in Los Angeles. And then I heard through the grapevine that uh, I think Paramount, one of the major studios, uh, went to this theater and said, if you want our big Christmas movie in December, you'll kick this thing out for our, this movie that we want to play in your theater in March. And that's how, that's how that business works. So we, we got big footed out. Um, but, uh, the, the upshot of that was, yeah, we didn't uh, have a big theatrical, uh, success. We really made our bones, uh, as probably the first non-porn home video movie to make money. <laughs> but of course, really significant in that is the music, of course. Um, and you guys are actually playing your instruments. So can I get yeah. some perspective on where your musical roots lay? Was that from, because way back when you were starting uh, out as a child actor, I think it was your piano teacher that had a role. So I guess music's yeah. been in your life the whole time. Yeah, I was, I was studying piano from the age of four and she decided to quit being a piano teacher, probably from the experience of trying to get me to practice. And her daughter had, was an actress, and so she had show business contacts, and she became a children's agent. And that's how I got into the business. Uh, but I was doing, I was, I was 
studying piano with a really serious uh, classical piano teacher for eight years. Um, learned to read and everything and played concertos, concerti, and um, then stopped when I went to college uh, to uni and then uh, picked up an instrument that I could learn without having to uh, read music, which I did, but I hated it. And I, so I picked up the bass and then, you know, whacked away at the bass for quite a while before we, we got into doing Spinal Tap. So obviously you're still musical because you've just done a musical album. Um, yeah. But, uh, but in the middle, of course, we would be remiss if we didn't mention a slightly popular uh, program you've been involved with, which is The Simpsons. Um, mm -hmm. And that picked up, I believe, just a few years after uh, Spinal Tap, right? So that was about 89 that, that started? Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, five years after, after Tap came out. And again- A long, one... a, a long dry five years, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did, a, I did some things. I did a, a couple of, uh, like two uh, specials for H, uh, three specials for HBO. And then I directed uh, a series for HBO. This was uh, before they used union directors and I wasn't a union director yet. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was all right. I mean, I, and I was started doing my radio show. Yeah. You've continued doing uh, this huge variety of uh, media, including writing and stuff. But The Simpsons, I guess, apart from being just incredibly iconic, has presumably facilitated you being able to do whatever other project you want to do. In other words, the stuff that you're doing now is very much, you know, exactly what you want to be doing, because quite frankly, you should be able to do whatever you feel like. Well, one, you know, there's a limit to that. I mean, there's a movie I've been trying to make for a long time, uh, and it's, just, it's been a struggle, and I think we may be near the starting gate, but it's I can't do whatever I want. Um, a, a movie with any kind of I did two movies that on on my own ticket, but this is something that's got a a little heftier price tag, and so uh, um, I'm out I'm out with the tin cup, you know. <laughs> so I guess it's a roundabout way of asking why why this album, why now? Uh... Well, why now is because uh, as I mentioned, I do this radio show every week, yep. and I. It's about the news, and so sometimes I I make do comedy sketches about the uh, president of the United States. The, the, I, his name slips my mind at the moment, um, but sometimes what he says or does inspires song. And I January this year I look back and I God I've written a lot of Donald Trump songs, so there's probably an album's worth in there. And I called my producer friend and went into the studio with him and um, took these. The radio versions are basically demo versions, and we took those and, and made proper recordings out of them. And um, we're releasing one a week um, from now through uh, the campaign, I guess, assuming the campaign lasts that long. <laughs> were you therefore still doing these when the lockdown happened, or had you – sounds like you must have been. I'd recorded them all uh, before the lockdown, um, and I was in Australia uh, touring with my wife, who's a performer. And I said to a friend of ours, uh, just just as they were kicking us out of Australia, that, that we left the day before Qantas benched its uh, international fleet. And uh, I said to our friend, do you know anybody who has a motion capture, a video effects studio of any kind? He, he said, yeah. And I, he put me together with this uh, guy, uh, Matt Hermans, at uh, a studio called Electric Lens. And I said, I wanted, I, I have these songs. I'm singing them as if Donald Trump is singing them and I need a music video that looks like Donald Trump is singing them. And so, uh, uh I, I, and I outlined kind of the, 
the techniques that I wanted to use. And he said, yeah, I can do that. And so during the, the big lockdown, or as I call it, lockdown one, um, I shot uh, my part up here in, in Los Angeles and, and uh, did uh, COVID style work, uh, a Skype call every couple of days with him uh, down in Sydney, uh, looking at the footage and then, you know, massaging it into shape, making notes, adding jokes, things like that. So it was about two and a half months of work before uh, we, we'd finished the job. But you'd done a previous uh, project that was a performance capture piece, hadn't you, like in 2016? Well, I'd been I'd been trying to get something going for quite a while. I had done a pilot for HBO, which um, this is sort of typical of my experience with HBO. They bought the pilot, and then the guy who heads the thing called back four days later and actually said these words. Did I say we were buying it? I meant we're not buying it. <laughs> and the call, the call went on to be equally absurd for the next five minutes. Um, so I've tried several times with several different teams. Um, and, uh, cause I've been fascinated by it. I mean, I did a, a television series in Britain where we reenacted the, uh, sillier or crazier, uh, parts of the Nixon white house tapes. And I was in makeup for four hours every day. And I, I thought, and my dermatologist agreed, maybe there's an easy way to do this and motion capture is it. So, so this makes sense except for what, doesn't make sense, I guess, at first glance, is that, you know, Son-in-Law, the, the music video that you made, literally was being directed from Australia by Australians while you're in California and you're in a lockdown, mm -hmm. so you've only got one other person with you. Like, it, at some point, it must have seemed like the world had sort of spun this project in a slightly odd way. Um, I mean, it actually, thanks to a, a really great Wi-Fi connection, um, it worked pretty great. I mean... Um, you know, whether somebody's in another room on a, on a talk back a microphone or, in, or on the other side of the globe coming through Wi-Fi, really not that much different, you know, as, as a personal experience when you're doing it, it's just a voice from the next room. It's kept the next room is in Sydney. So you were in an XN suit. You had, uh, I think, a, uh, an iPhone for your facial capture and then special gloves for your hands. Uh, yep. And then what were you looking at? Did you have, I think you had a magic mirror, didn't you, at some point? So you could sort of preview I had, this? I had one and I, and it was of some use just so I could, I, you know, sort of picture myself in the space of the Oval Office that we, we were performing in, the, the CGI Oval Office. Um, but basically, my eyeline was to the uh, facial camera. Um, it was, it, it was a, you know... Thank goodness I'd had experience with this because uh, if, if you're doing this for the first time, it can get a little overwhelming uh, and confusing. So, but I'd I'd worn the suit, I'd done all that stuff, um, so uh, it, it felt almost comfortable. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I mean, a lot of actors would say that when they get in costume or in makeup, that helps them find the character. Now, of course, mm -hmm. your work on The Simpsons, you don't get in character costume because it's mm -hmm. electronically. Or, or hand animated, but did was there any aspect of that with this that actually seeing yourself somehow helped you with your performance as Trump? Uh, yeah, a little bit. It helped, you know, uh, root me in the in the body of someone who's, shall we say, heftier than I am. Um, and uh, you know, I, I do have that experience when I play somebody on screen. I mean, in the aforementioned Nixon series, uh, the minute I got into his suit. Um, I felt more like him, you know, I'm not a big suit wearer anyway. 
or a small suit wearer for that matter. But that that did help me get into his gestures and motions. Um, with this, you know, seeing it did help me uh, in a similar way. Uh, but more, you know, it's more external clues than internal clues, I'd say, in this particular case. So son-in-law is obviously political satire, but mm-hmm. the the caricature that you're trying to portray, how much were you trying to, I guess, work it as a Trump puppet or how much were you trying to be as sort of believably that individual as you could be? In other words, were you trying to kind of exaggerate for effect or comic effect? No, no. No, I, I try not to be exaggerating. And people I choose to portray are silly enough, and I just try to be as accurate as I can um, and, and get all their silliness down. My, my philosophy with this stuff is you don't have to push it. Uh, just observe it carefully and then edit out the boring parts. And you've got it. Um, and, and, yeah, so I was trying to be Trump singing sincerely, about uh, this guy who uh, whose uh, portfolio stretches to the very extremes of his lack of competence, <laughs> and and the song itself is uh, it's great, it's funny, it's also like as most great comedy is kind of challenging. There's a couple of lines in there that I almost choked on when I heard them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's uh, it's a boundary line that you're pushing fairly hard and. Mm-hmm. I guess, how is that your sort of natural comic place to be that like you like to, I mean, do you feel like you want to be pushing boundaries because you're in, you're sort of getting good comic effect out of that or pushing boundaries because you feel that's what was acquired from your art? No, I, I, I do what I think is funny and, uh, you know, I, I don't push boundaries for the sake of it. I think, you know, there's a lot of controversy right now about, oh, comedy can't do this or comedy can't do that. And my feeling is if people are laughing, they're too busy laughing to be ticked off. You know, you're, you're getting ticked off because you're not being amused. Uh, and, and therefore you're going, you know, what, what's wrong here? Um, I, I don't, you know, I, I'm writing those lyrics to, um, portray, uh, a character I find silly, uh, if, uh, to put it mildly, uh, talking about another character I find silly, to put it mildly. And so I'm just writing what I think he might say. And, you know, he's pretty, he, he, he doesn't respect a lot of boundaries. Uh, so I, I need to keep that in mind as I'm writing him. I guess that's the obvious question. Like in somebody who has clearly expressed previously unimaginable uh, comments for a politician and and survived politically to, to continue on it, it, you know, like there are, there, there's a lot less room to be extreme when the, when the person you're talking about is already fairly extreme in the first yeah. place. Yeah. That's, and that to me, that's a gift, you know, in my particular line of work, it's a, he's, he's given me this great gift of, you know, I don't have to exaggerate. He's out there, man. He's right. He's right where I want him. <laughs> so, so the procedure for this is after that motion capture session has happened um, mm-hmm. there's work that's done obviously by the, the Sydney team, both, uh, Matt's group and, uh, Michaela's group at, uh, at mod. And then you're reviewing that at how quickly in this process, did you see what, you know, you felt was the, the sort of the final look of, uh, of president oh, it Trump? Took a, it took a while. Right. I mean, uh, we're, we're, we were, we were all trying to make, uh, three or four different technologies, uh, play nice with each other. 
And uh, that's almost as difficult as getting three or four people to play nice with each other. Um, uh, there were, you know, I think this was sort of unprecedented in terms of all of these combinations. You know, individually, these things have been used before, but in combination, the way they were used this time, I don't think uh, had been done before. So everybody was learning. And we just shot the second uh, video for another song in this collection, uh, a Trump song that'll be out in uh, mid-September, I think. And uh, clearly, we'd all learned lessons from the first experience. So it went went faster. Yeah. And I understand it was rigged a bit differently, but uh, notwithstanding, obviously, the, the, the desire to always do better, how much did that first version meet your expectations, given that, you know, it was going to oh. be a, a, an ask? It, it was, you know, everything I'd envisioned. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a, a, a tough that way in that I, I really would like to realize what I've imagined. And uh, I, I thought both Michaela's team and, and uh, Matt's team did a brilliant job at, at getting, that, getting that done. I mean, for somebody that's obviously known for being incredibly witty, you take your comedy fairly seriously, don't you? Well, I take the realization or the execution of it fairly seriously. I, you know, um, I like nothing better to, than to be with colleagues that I've chosen to play with and just be, you know, having a good time making each other laugh. But there's a lot more to it than that, um, especially when you're doing music. Uh, you know, that's a whole other side of it that has to be done well. There's nothing either funny or entertaining about bad music uh, to me. So, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's, that's a whole other time when, you know, you want to sing in tune and stuff like that. That's, that's sort of, you're not playing around. You have to get that right. Uh, so there's, the, you know, the, hopefully at the beginning when you're developing the, whatever it is, a sketch or a song or a movie or whatever, uh, you're filled with, uh, funny ideas and you're making yourself laugh every once in a while. And then, you know, when you, come to put the put the pieces together to make it a, a, a thing then it's then it's serious work so having gone through that process now twice as you say uh do you see scope for doing this type of work in any other context maybe a, a special or a tv show or anything or is it just well, I you mean, feel that, like that, that, it had always been my my goal to take what i do on the radio in terms of the sketches that i do where i play all the characters and and transfer that to a visual medium. I mean, this is still just one character. And uh, where I went in some other experiments with this technique, not as developed as, as it is now, is with multiple characters where I was playing two or three characters in a scene, which really excited me, you know, and I was thrilled to even try it. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, there's, there's, there's more room to play in, in this particular space. And you're now operating from home, aren't you, effectively? Because I think I saw in an interview recently, you said that after years of trying to work from home, you're now being encouraged to work from home. But yeah, Well, in terms of The Simpsons, I've been doing yes. my radio show from home for years. And, uh, you know, my, my little uh, joke is that uh, self-isolating in Los Angeles is like being in Los Angeles. <laughs> I actually lived in Los Angeles for a while, so I, I get what you mean. It's not exactly... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, get out and, and hang out on the street corner. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, New Orleans is the, is the polar opposite of Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Regard. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I've been in New Orleans and I, I know that it's uh, – well, you, you split your time between the two, don't you? Yeah, I'm more New Orleans these days uh, just because it's it's so great and uh, it's, it, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's nurturing in a way that uh, – L.A., you know, the thing is L.A. is a beautiful place which uh, people have uh, successfully screwed up a lot. And New Orleans is not a particularly beautiful place that people have done amazing things with in terms of architecture and, and musical culture. Well, you've done serious and, documentaries about the uh, the uh, situation with the uh, the flooding and everything in New Orleans, haven't you? Yes, I did a, a documentary uh, film in 2010 because it struck me that five years after the flood, uh, most people outside the city had no idea why the city flooded. Uh, the first take of the media... I don't want to sound like a certain president here, but the first take that the mass media did got almost everything important wrong. Uh, and so I, I, I sort of despaired of that and tried to make a documentary to, to uh, get the, the, the uh, authoritative information from two university studies of the flood out uh, into the public. And it wasn't easy. No, no, but that was a very insightful uh, analysis of what had happened with the uh, levees and uh, certainly, I think, quite eliminating to many people. Well, I hope so. I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I face this problem of, what's the guy with the Sim from The Simpsons got to say about the, you know, freaking levees? So I tried to stay out of the movie as much as, in the first cut of the movie, I'm not even in it, but somebody said, no, you have to be, <laughs> my, I think it was my wife said, you know, you have to be <laughs> Uh, or no, yeah, it was my wife and one of the producers. Um, but you know, so I really focused on these people who knew the story, had experienced the story, had investigated the, the uh, situation. And in every case, in the three cases I depict, uh, the two heads of the university investigations and the whistleblower inside the agency that screwed up so badly, uh, they paid a heavy, heavy price for telling the truth in public. Well, it's been great having a chance to talk to you about this. Um, the the album, as you said, you've got a number of uh, songs that you're releasing. How many sort of film clips? Because you actually, I think you released one song already that's without a film clip, but how how many clips yeah. or musical um, pieces we're gonna do you do? We're going to do at least one more video. Right. Um, so that'll be three in total? No, it'll be two in total unless okay. uh, I think of another idea. <laughs> um, but it, seriously, I mean, it, you know. Uh, that is a, that is a part of the thing, but so there'll be about, uh, there's 12, I think 12 songs total. So one a week and then, uh, a second video in mid September. And then it all for people who like physical objects, it comes out as a physical object, uh, as an album. Yes. Kids, people used to say that, uh, <laughs> in uh, mid October. I have, I still have a, a much valued LP collection. I, I think there's tremendous benefit in an album concept. I have 10,000 of the suckers. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 I just never got rid of, of an LP. And of course, for those that want to see the uh, son-in-law video, it's available on YouTube. And presumably uh, people can also, of course, find out other links to your stuff. Where, where is your, your sort of, apart from the radio show, where's the favorite place you like to connect with the audience? HarryShearer.com. And I'm on Twitter. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Harry, for taking time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Great, great fun to talk to you. Thank you so much. Before, before I close out, just want to say things are going strong over at FX PhD. 
Uh, we actually took the opportunity in COVID to try and help uh, various artists who were out of work by getting them to actually create content for us. So we're going to see the results of the fruits of that labor later on this year, though we've actually seen it already with a couple courses from Victor Perez that we've released, advanced new courses by him. Katie Morris doing her first course at FX PhD for us, covering Silhouette. And of course, Christoph is back with a couple of introduction, introduction to Flame courses. And we've got several others that are obviously coming out in coming weeks and months. So anyway, um, big thanks to those. And big thanks to those of you who are still members of FX PhD and taking this time to learn. Uh, we really do truly appreciate it. Well, that's it for this FX podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to download and listen all the way to the end. I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.